0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginian Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, February 12, 2022. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 71 of this series. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In our last presentation, we discussed many of the countless similarities which the Hebrews had with ancient Greek culture, demonstrating the fact that Hebrews and Greeks held many beliefs in common even if one side was from a pagan perspective. Now we shall discuss the similarities between the Hebrew language and the languages of Europe, mostly Latin, Greek, and English. Those similarities go far beyond the basic facts, the basic fact that the nations of Europe use a Hebrew-Phoenician alphabet, as many of the most basic words are so similar in sound and meaning that they must be directly related but before we get into that discussion we shall discuss a prophecy which where yahweh god had promised that he would speak to his people in a language other than hebrew and that language must have been greek hello truth fits thank you for joining us once again
1: hey bill thanks for having me so, so yeah here we're going to show that the new testament was written in greek and um, what, what it shows that um, after Alexander, uh, several centuries had passed and that the, you know, the Israelites had started to accept some of the Greek culture, right? Uh, Joseph, Josephus even speaks of that where Hebrews just decided, um, you know, to give up on all the Hebrew customs and just become Hellenistic, right? And uh, it logically, Greek was the language i I forgot the word now the uh lingua franca that's it of pretty much you know the roman world and and civilization so it's logical that um they would write the bible the new testament in greek because also the israelites were in europe so so it's only logical they they wouldn't write it in aramaic as uh the jews always say because why would they What, what would be the point in that and um jews always hate that the fact that it was written in Greek because they they despise the truth coming out that the um, you know Israelites in the East had a close relationship with the Western world, right? And they always try and build this narrative that the Israelites were much more closer with the Arabs, that they spoke Aramaic, and Aramaic is basically a, 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 the same language. Arabs speak, apparently, that's what they claim. Now they're even claiming that all these languages are under the umbrella of, uh, if I pronounce it right, Afrocentric, but basically uh nigger language. That, that's what they're also claiming. So they're claiming a lot of things all at once, right? Just as long as it's not the Israelites were white. And <laughs> that, that's basically what they're trying to cover up, right, Bill? Well, right, absolutely. The fact that
0: first that Yahweh did prophecy, that he would speak to his people in a different language and second the fact that the New Testament was distributed and originally written in Greek proves that alone proves that the lost scattered children of Israel the children of God scattered abroad as Johnny called them I think in chapter 11 of his gospel the 12 tribes scattered abroad, the 12 tribes that Paul toiled for. These men, writing in Greek, were writing to people of the Greek-speaking world, which was basically the Roman Empire. Greek was actually the language that was spoken commonly on the streets of Rome, where Latin was the language of the military and the government. It was limited in scope at the even at the peak of the empire, the use of Latin was limited in, spo, in scope. Greek was the lingua franca; it was the language of trade and diplomacy for several hundred years. And even most Italians had descended from Greek settlers in Italy, so they spoke Greek commonly. The language of of the time was Greek, and and only. The Roman Catholic Church had forced a change from Greek to Latin as the language of scholarship and began to use almost strictly Latin in all of its church writings and its educational materials in the universities of Europe and all of that. That didn't happen until much later, until after the 4th century, so that the New Testament The new covenant that was promised to the children of Israel back there in the Old Testament was written in Greek, which proves that those children of Israel, scattered abroad, would have been familiar with Greek and lived in that white European world, period. This should be a no-brainer. This shouldn't even be questioned. There was a push, though, towards Hellenism in Judea from the... Second or third century. Without a doubt, there was even Josephus had recorded where certain Judeans petitioned Herod to build a gymnasium in Jerusalem. And they, and he did. And, and you could see that also in a lot of the personal names in the New Testament, where many of the names of the apostles and other people with whom Christ had, had dealt or ministered to in the gospel, where a lot of those names are Hebrew-based, but a lot of those names are actually Greek. The, the name Jason comes to mind. And the name Stephen, the first martyr. Stephen, the first martyr, had a Greek name. The word Stephanus is a Greek word, and it means crown. John Mark. Now, Mark, John Mark was the name of one of the apostles, and his mother had a house in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12, her name was Mary, which reveals that she was a Hebrew, and his name was Johannes, which is actually a Hebrew name, Hellenized, but His surname was Mark. And that's actually a Latin name. It's not even a Greek name. It's a Latin surname. Aside from John Mark, there are many characters who are Hebrews in the New Testament who have Greek names. Jason and Stephen being the first two to come to my mind. Luke is a Greek name. And Luke was probably a Hebrew. It, it's not given, it's not certain. But if he was the Lucas at Antioch, who was learned in the scriptures, and I believe he was, he's mentioned in Acts chapter 13, perhaps, then, he, I'm, I'm trying to look for the entry, then he certainly is a Hebrew. And that was when Luke, started working with Paul was after Antioch so Matthew is a Hebrew name of course Peter is a Greek name but his actual name was Simon which is a Hebrew name most of the Apostles had the Apostles themselves had Hebrew names Timothy is a Greek name it's Titus is a Greek name now you may say that they're converts from overseas, but Timothy, again, his mother was a Hebrew and his father was a Greek. And that may have been the case with John Mark, that his father was actually a Roman. That That's a strong possibility because his surname was a Latin name. But there are plenty of other, of other figures in the New Testament that had Greek names. And we could see the amount of Hellenization that went on from the frequency of those names, that these people were Hebrew people who were accepting of Greek language
1: and culture. And Bill, when um Christ renamed Simon to Peter and he said Petros, w- would that be, did he use the Greek word? Do, do we know if if, if uh, Christ was speaking Greek or Hebrew to, to the apostles? But if you named him a Greek, uh, gave him a Greek name, well, that reveals it, right? Well, it, it's difficult to assert that one way or another because even Paul
0: had used the Hebrew term to refer to Peter in an affectionate way. He used the term kathos, which is actually a Hebrew word for stone. So it, it's difficult to gather whether Christ had actually used the Hebrew or the Greek form when he spoke those words, it's it it could be argued.
1: And um, Paul, he 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 had a Hebrew version of his name Saulus, but he chose Paul, right? When he went round, because uh, people would be more familiar with that and understand it, right? Paul, but that shows that he was going to, to the Greek world as well, of course, right? I'm,
0: I'm not, I'm not really certain of that. I don't think that he changed his name at all. I think that his name may have been Saulus Paulus. If you look at the account in Acts, and Paul came from a notable family, and Luke didn't know much about Paul, ostensibly, when they first met. But when Paul and Barnabas go to, on their first missionary trip, and they go to the Isle of Paphos, they meet with a man named Sergius Paulus, who was a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Now, a few verses later, Luke writes, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. And in my opinion, because I can't prove this, Sergius Paulus must have been familiar with Saul in order to call for him and want to hear what he and Barnabas had to say. If Paul had the same surname, Saul, who was also called Paul, then Luke is making a note of that here. It's very possible the two men were actually related. Because Paul, as he says later in the book of Acts, as he attests, came from a notable family of Pharisees. It's very possible that Sergius Paulus was a Hebrew who was a Roman appointee at Paphos. That's possible. I'm not, I, I wouldn't put money on it. I, I wouldn't stake my reputation on it. But it's very possible that these two men were related. And that this is when Luke learns that Saul's name was also Paulus, was also Paul. So what we have is Luke, from this point forward, begins to refer to Paul by his surname, by the name Paulus, rather than by his given name or the name Saul. And there, once again, we see a case of Hellenization, because Paulus is a Greek, it seems to be the Greek name, where Saul, of course, is a Hebrew name. That's my opinion, that there's something going on there that's deeper in the relationship between Sergius Paulus and Saul who's also called Paul, right? Who's also called Paulus, Acts chapter 13, verse 9. And that's why, I I mean, why would two men who are common Hebrews have access to the governor of an island? He was actually a proconsul, which is a, a, a fairly high rank in Roman government. At least Luke calls him a proconsul in his use of the word Antupatus which is actually the head of a province, right? Okay. That's my opinion. So there's more to that name Paul. It I don't believe Paul just changed his name. I think he had both names. And that's what Luke and sort of infers when he says then Saul, who is also called Paul And that word called is added to the text, so it's Saul, who is also Paul. It's just that Paul had two names, and they must have been Saulus Paulus, which would be typical, like John Mark. John had a surname, Mark. And even that concept of a surname is Greek or Roman. It wasn't originally Hebrew. The Hebrews of the Old Testament typically did not have surnames that they were Paul, son of John, or John, son of Paul. Or sometimes, if they did have a, a surname, it was merely attached to the place where they were born and raised. But even that's rare. Solomon, son of David. I don't know if you have anything to add before we
1: proceed. Well, I was going to say that Germanic tribes had the same thing, right? But before uh, we started building... a. Uh, a much greater civilization and then we started adding middle names and surnames but it, but it was exactly the same so so you imagine just the hebrews or israelites got deported and then you know when they came to um in europe it was exactly the same right like so and so son of so and so absolutely when christ spoke at nazareth they said is
0: this not jesus the son of joseph he was called jesus of nazareth at, at- Merely as an identifier, but Nazareth would have never been his surname. He would have been Jesus Bar Yosef, or Jesus, son of Joseph. Okay. Why the New Testament was written in the Greek language? There are rumors that the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic, which is also sometimes called Syriac if you read 19th century English histories. They refer to it as Syriac and it's actually Syriac, the word Syriac that appears in the, in the King James version in Isaiah, which I will cite later on. Syriac, wherever we see Syria or, or Syriac, the Hebrew word is Aram or Aramaic after Aram, right? Aramaic was the lingua franca of the Babylonian and the Persian empires it was displaced by Greek in the Hellenistic period after the fourth century BC Alexander having conquered most of the Persian Empire in 330 BC or thereabouts so from that time on Greek became the lingua franca of the entire region the language of trade and diplomacy So there are rumors that the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic, which is also sometimes called Syriac, but those rumors are a lie. The oldest known manuscript of any portion of the New Testament in Aramaic dates to the 5th century, and several known translations into Aramaic from Greek were created even later such as the Philozeniana in the early 6th century, or the Harclensis, which is a version, a translation of the New Testament from Greek to Aramaic, and it's the only translation that we would consider to be the complete New Testament, and that was made in the early 7th century. There was a Syriac... Harmony of the Gospels called the Diatessaron which was made in the late 2nd century by Tadian. And sometimes he was called Tadian the Syrian but sometimes he was called Tadian the Assyrian. And the Diatessaron has not survived. We only know about it from the writings of others. Now, that was probably made in In the late second century. I think Tadian lived until about 170 or 180 AD. I don't remember. But that was only an attempt to rewrite the four gospel accounts into a harmony and it should not be reckoned as actual scripture. Even the existence of that shows that these scriptures were actually originally written in Greek. There are also related claims that Christ and the Apostles spoke Aramaic and not Hebrew. But often the apostles mention their native tongue and they always called it Hebrew and not Aramaic. Syriac and Hebrew are distinguished in Isaiah chapter 36, which records events that occurred around 700 BC. And in that, Account, we can see that people of that time who understood Hebrew did not necessarily understand Aramaic. So while the two languages do have many similarities, they weren't the same to native Hebrew speakers who in Isaiah's time in Isaiah chapter 36 wouldn't expect to understand Aramaic unless they were educated in it. There may have been differences between the Hebrew of the first century and that of Isaiah's time, but it was nevertheless Hebrew and the Apostles must have known better what language they were speaking than modern commentators. So it just sort of, bewilders me when i see modern commentators say that the apostles spoke aramaic or that jesus and his followers or or they wrote in aramaic when they themselves call it hebrew and they call themselves hebrews
1: yeah this is probably this is just a, a Jew liar that's been made up right that they claim when the israelites came back from babylon uh, they couldn't speak Hebrew anymore, and, and the language was just lost forever, so it's kind of an Aramaic language that they were speaking, right? And, and it's really just a trick to link the people racially to Babylon and Arabia, etc. That, that's the real reason behind it, the only reason they pushed that, right? I believe so, absolutely. But where we see
0: in Luke chapter 23, verse 38, the inscription that Pilate made For the cross of Christ, Luke said it was written in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. John, in chapter 5, in chapter 19, three times in chapter 19, and once in chapter 5, he explains certain place names or certain words that appeared in Hebrew, such as the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha, the place called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabatha, the place called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethsa, Bethesda, having five porches, right? And then he goes on to say at the end of chapter 19, that Pilate's inscription was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So in Acts chapter 21, Paul addressed the people of Jerusalem. And it says that he spoke to them in the Hebrew tongue. And then at the beginning of Acts chapter 22, where we have the text of Paul's address, as it was recorded by Luke. And when they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. So, in Acts chapter 26, Paul explains his encounter on a road to Damascus with Christ when he receives his great awakening and he says that Christ spoke to him in the Hebrew tongue. So so we see all these references to Hebrew in the New Testament. Can we imagine that the apostles didn't know what language they were speaking? I mean, that's pretty nuts for us to be that arrogant to imagine that the apostles were wrong about what language they were speaking. When Aramaic was a well-known language. And they never called it Aramaic. So all these Aramaic manuscripts of the New Testament. It could be pretty well shown that they are translations from Greek. And they don't exist before the early 5th or perhaps the very end of the 4th century. There are no Aramaic manuscripts of the new testament it was written in greek and there's a plethora of manuscripts surviving that go all the way back in greek that go all the way back to the second century and we have generations of early christian writers who cited the scriptures in greek and who wrote in greek and who never indicated that there were any Aramaic copies that were older than the Greek copies which they were reading and and citing. So the, the idea that the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic is absolutely contrary to the entire history of the New Testament. The only book of the New Testament which may have any claim to have been originally written in Hebrew is the Gospel of Matthew. As the 2nd century Christian writer Papias of Hierapolis had left an ambiguous statement that Matthew collected the oracles in the Hebrew language, then the later 2nd century Christian writer Irenaeus, writing perhaps 30 or 40 years after Papias, Irenaeus had also attested in his Against Heresies, in Book 3, Chapter 1, Paragraph 1, that Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. Now, if we read later accounts, we would see that the Ebionite Christians, who were a heretical sect, of Christianity that developed in Judea in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, I believe. That those Ebionite Christians had used what they said was Matthew's Gospel. But they didn't use the letters of Paul. They hated Paul. They despised him. Just as we see the people of 1st century Jerusalem despise Paul because of his teachings on the law and the Old Covenant. So, they continued to despise Paul, and they used this gospel, which was evidently, and perhaps it was a corrupted version by then, because they did not believe that the Ebionite Christians rejected the notion that Yahshua Christ is God incarnate. They rejected that. So, it seems to me that they were following Jews, But they claim to be following Matthew's Gospel. But even if Matthew may have written a Gospel account in Hebrew, it has not survived to this day. And the Gospel of Matthew, which we do have, was originally written in Greek. It is not a translation. So Matthew probably wrote his Gospel in both languages. But one account is not a translation of the other. The Aramaic New Testament scriptures known to scholars today are all translations from earlier Greek versions. Even Paul's epistle to the Hebrews was originally written in Greek. The fact that the promised New Testament would come in a language other than Hebrew may be evident in the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah and especially in Isaiah chapter twenty. 8, where we read, in part, from verses 10 and 11. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. Of course, Yahweh God would speak to the people in the form of Yahshua Christ, the Savior and Redeemer, whom he had promised throughout those prophecies of Isaiah. So he would do it from a Hebrew perspective, with stammering lips and another tongue, which means a different language. The process of transforming these scriptures into Greek began shortly after the time that Judea became subject to Alexander the Great. According to Judean tradition, recorded by Flavius Josephus, in the opening paragraphs of Antiquities, Book 12, the Macedonian ruler of Egypt, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, had requested of the high priest in Jerusalem that a translation of the Hebrew Scriptures be made in Greek for his library at Alexandria. His request was granted, and describing it, Josephus even repeated the fable, and it is a fable, that the Judeans sent six elders out of every tribe. And that's 72 men, but the name of the work was ultimately called the Seturgent, which means 70 and not 72. Where Josephus repeated this fable, he contradicted his own words in Antiquities book 11, where he said that, therefore, there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe, subject to the Romans. While the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates, of course, Josephus didn't know that many of them had actually migrated into Western Europe, or Eastern Europe also. He just knew that they were still beyond Euphrates in his own time. While the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates till now, and are an immense multitude, and not to be estimated by numbers. And of course, when we look at who was inhabiting all the regions beyond the Euphrates, at the time when Josephus said that, we find Scythians, Saka, Goths, Massagetae, and we can identify those people with the ancient children of Israel through the Assyrian inscriptions. There is little doubt that during this period, and I'm speaking of the 3rd century B.C., The translation of scripture, which we know as the Septuagint, had appeared and that it was ultimately well known to the apostles. But I can't accept the fable of its having been translated by six elders out of every tribe because I don't know from where or how the Judeans of the 3rd century B.C., could have gotten 60 of those men from the 10 tribes that were beyond the Euphrates I don't think
1: it would have been possible Uh, but this also shows that from the 3rd century onwards uh, if if there's truth to what Josephus is saying that the scripture would be available right Uh, if it's in Greek or the um, the, the Alexandria that was a, a famous place of learning right so many of the elders or or learned men would have went there and they would have had access if they wanted to read the Hebrew scriptures in Greek. And we can see that that likely influenced a lot of philosophy, right? Which we've brought up before. Well, yes, it did. And it did influence a lot of
0: philosophy. But I believe that Greeks had access to Hebrew scriptures even long before they were translated into Greek. And, And there is probably enough material to compose an essay on that, that certain early Greek philosophers had access to the scriptures. There are intertestamental period writings that survived in Greek that have not survived in Hebrew, and among them are the books of the Maccabees, especially 1st Maccabees, which we would expect that the chronicles of the... Hasmonean kings, we would expect them to have been written in Hebrew, but they only survived in Greek. The Book of Tobit, I believe, only survived in Greek. The Book of Judith, I think that only survived in Greek, but I'm not a hundred percent certain of that. Some of the apocryphal books of Daniel, such as Susanna, only survived in Greek. The Wisdom of Sirach, now. Sirach had written his wisdom, I believe it's actually the wisdom of his grandfather, and he evidently lived sometime around the third century, the end of the third century BC, I believe, the beginning of the second, and that only survived in Greek. No Hebrew copy of that survives. So was it written in Greek? I can't say that. The wisdom of Solomon only survived in Greek and there's no extant Hebrew copy. Now they claim that was written in Greek, but I've rejected that in my own commentaries on the wisdom of Solomon and, and argued as to why. So it, it's that the contemporary literature of that time is more telling, I believe. Serac and first Maccabees that these things only survive in Greek. I don't believe there is a Hebrew Syrac. I'm going to double-check myself. But we can move on. We don't have to let that hold us up. Speaking in approximate terms, there are nearly 300 citations of passages from the Old Testament found in the scriptures of the New Testament. Of these, almost a third are verbatim or nearly verbatim citations from the Septuagint, and close to another third are somewhat modified, often merely for context, where it is still evident that the Septuagint text was the source. Now, of the balance, some are paraphrased, while others favor the Masoretic text or, on occasion, the Aramaic Targums and this pattern is not consistent among the authors of New Testament scriptures. For example, the citations from Matthew and Revelation seem to favor the Septuagint less frequently than those of either Luke or Paul. In any event, all of our New Testament authors cited scriptures from the Septuagint Often enough to reveal that they were certainly familiar with scriptures in the Greek language. Even James chapter 4 verse 6, which cites Proverbs chapter 3 verse 34, is verbatim from the Septuagint, except that it has theos rather than curios. Peter has that same variation where he has Theos rather than curios. But the rest of his citation of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, which is found in First Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, is nearly, but not quite, verbatim from the Septuagint. Peter added a couple of words here and there that basically clarified what he thought Isaiah meant. So, while the differences are minor, the Septuagint was certainly the inspiration for Peter's text, in that citation. The fact that the New Testament was written in Greek, and that Greek translations of the Old Testament were made in anticipation of the fulfillment of those words found in Isaiah chapter 28, that with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, Help to prove that Christ never intended to come merely for Judeans but rather he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel for the twelve tribes scattered abroad who had mostly all come to know Greek to one degree or another by the time of his coming if Yahweh God knew beforehand which language he had in mind when the words of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11 were recorded. Greek must have been that language, and of course he knew, because he is God. So this leads us to discuss the many similarities which the Hebrew language has with other European languages. Even if Greek is markedly different than Hebrew, it also has marked similarities. And both Latin and English also have sufficient similarities with Hebrew that they must all be related languages. They must have all been related in deep antiquity. So that's our next subject.
1: Yeah, and if you think about it, when um, Jacob went to Egypt to meet his son Joseph, um, just from memory, I think there were seventy of them, or seventy-two, something like that. So, just a, a small family, right? In in comparison to the world, and that language, and you know, the alphabet that they developed, whether it was developed all there whilst they were in bondage, or they already had some kind of uh, writing, well, was well, somehow that small family, th- that language, ended up in Europe, right? and you'd think what, why would a small insignificant family have such an influence on the European people like Greeks and, and Italy um, What, well, why didn't they use the uh, Egyptian language or the Assyrian language, you know, etc the, the only logical explanation would be that it was Israelites who moved to Europe and brought their language with them and that's why there's all these similarities not just in the alphabet but also in, in the words right, right Bill?
0: Well, absolutely, they definitely brought their language with them, but over time, there were outside influences, that the Scythians must have had Persian and Assyrian influences on their language, as they had, many of them had sojourned for several centuries in proximity of Persians and Assyrians, and Medes, and other groups, other um, Geppethites. and Shemite groups. So, of course, they would have influences on their language, and great parts of it would evolve over time. New words would arise and come into use. Look at how much American English has digressed with British English in 200 years. There's a lot of words that British English retains, that Americans don't use, and that Americans have replaced. And that's in spite of the fact that our two countries, even though they're 3,000 miles apart, have always had clear and open lines of communication and exchanges of culture and literature. And we still have these digressions, these paths that our different languages have taken, American English and British English, we've still digressed. So, in spite of the fact that we've always read the same books, there are still serious changes in the language. So, imagine not having those avenues of cultural and, and literary exchanges, which the children of israel in their migrations didn't have they didn't stay in touch with the land from which they came they didn't stay in touch with people who spoke their language as they migrated away and as their language languages by then had evolved into something different over many centuries 20 30 centuries so 30 is a slight exaggeration. The fact is that if there are still many basic root words that have the same sound and the same meaning, even after all those degrees of separation, that betrays a common origin for those languages. That's my assertion. I hope it made sense. It was kind of circumlocutious, or however I should pronounce that.
1: Yeah, and I think um, when they developed the Hebrew alphabet, um, you know, if the final form, it seems to be they had like a Paleo-Hebrew, a final form in Egypt, then they weren't in the best circumstances, you know, where they could, um, when they're in bondage it's not exactly you know like now where you have universities and you can speak and discuss uh you, you know at leisure so so they made this alphabet not not the best conditions but there was a lot of room to improve it right like just for example where we they didn't have vowels and and this alpha letter it seems that if it's at the start of the word uh, it can basically be any vowel sound right and obviously where, when you go to greece and they had time to improve it and and you know that's when they started to add all these new letters and um you know new grammar etc so, so you can see there was this constant improvement and you can also look at um old english to modern english uh, sorry middle english to modern english to see that we followed the same steps we kept improving it so so it's only logical that you'll see this gradual evolution from from the Hebrew to the Greek Latin English right
0: right i i have sort of mixed feelings about some of that though the contention that Hebrew had no vowels. And that's, to me, partially correct. Because I really believe that the aleph, the yad, the vav, they were consonantal vowels. And I believe that they functioned consonants that sometimes functioned as vowels. Now, Our transliterations of modern Hebrew come through the Hebrew of the Jews who had actually reinvented a lot of aspects of Hebrew grammar or at least devised it anew. All of this, these dots that they use to indicate what sort of vowel should be inserted between consonants are a complete innovation. Those dots did not exist in antiquity. So they are innovating and creating their own forms of words from what didn't necessarily exist in antiquity. That's my opinion on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, all I'd say is that there are some hidden sounds that that there appears to be in between when you just write the letters and, and obviously that could always be improved, right? Today we tend to we we start uh, chopping off um, sounds to to simplify words like like I say butter instead of butter, right? But but back then, uh, you can see the Greeks started writing out every sound, etc. If you get what I mean.
0: Well, absolutely, yes, that they created vowels like the epsilon, the omicron, and the omega, which did not exist in Hebrew, the upsilon, and then they took a couple of letters and made them vowels, even though they weren't necessarily always vowels in Hebrew. I believe they were consonantal vowels. That's how I would identify them. And that's, in Greek, that's the the alpha, or the aleph, and the iota or the yod. So, the Greeks use those letters exclusively as vowels. Even though the yod can have that consonantal Y sound when it begins a word and is followed by another vowel. Just as we do it in in German or, or in English, and we actually, the letter Y is actually a recent innovation on those languages. To represent that I is a consonant, if that makes sense, the way I'm explaining that.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, for, for example, the Aleph, if it was at the start, it could be several sounds, right? I mean, we don't really know how Moses would have pronounced something like, like Adam begins with an Aleph, but so does El or Elohim or Ephraim. And so does Omen. And then I can't think of any U words, but there are some that, that start with aleph, so it would be logical to start splitting the aleph into several vowels so you're more specific and and it's easier to know what sound it would make, right? It's just taking it to the next step when you can improve the language, right?
0: Yes, and and we will actually see that the word omen is even a Hebrew word. I made this list when, when I first found Christian Identity. And I read probably, I don't know, anywhere between 6 and 10 Christian identity type books from Comparais and Swift. And I finished reading identity books and I wanted to start reading ancient classical literature so that I could prove Christian identity for myself. And I remember at the time when I first read through the Bible for the first time in my life back at the end of 1997, I remember a time when I only had three books to my name, I think, and it it was an American Heritage College Dictionary, and a Strong's Concordance, which I still have to this day, that I borrowed from a friend who never asked for it back, and I never offered it. I think I did, and he told me to hold on to it. But it was a gift to him from his mother, and I was supposed to return it to him. And I never heard from him again, so I wouldn't even know where to return it. But that's okay. That's besides the point. I had a Strong Skin coordinates, an American Heritage College Dictionary, which is actually a pretty good dictionary, I believe, to this day, the third edition. And... That dictionary has an entire section of supposed Indo-European root words. Words that are common or sounds that were retained in many different European languages that have a common meaning, a common root, and mean roughly the same thing in all of our or or at least in many Indo-European languages. They weren't retained. Not every root was retained by every language. So, I believe that if you take that Indo-European roots list and compare that with Hebrew, that you'll understand that at least much of the basis for all of our Indo-European languages is found in Hebrew. But that's beside the point. I've never had the opportunity to do that exclusively. Maybe someday I will. But I had taken these this concordance and this dictionary and thought that if we were really descendants of the Hebrews, that there should be at least a lot of common words in our languages. And I read that idea in some of those Christian identity books that I had read early on but there were no lists there, there was nothing extensive to support the claim so I thought I'd make my own list and I went through every single word 8,000 and change 8,500 perhaps entries of Hebrew words in Strong's Concordance Attempting to identify what English words could have come from each Hebrew word, if any. And I actually found, I believe the list is at least 400 English words. I've actually found about 400 words at that time that were English words that I believe came from Hebrew. And I still believe they came from Hebrew. This doesn't establish that all English words come from Hebrew, but this does establish that a certain core of basic words in our language do indeed come from Hebrew. So I thought we'd go down this list and discuss some of these words. If you see enough of this, it's absolutely inevitable that English and Greek and Latin are all related to ancient Hebrew at a very early time now I made this list before I ever studied Greek and over the years I have been able to go back and add Greek words here and there to my list but I never after I studied Greek for 10 or 12 years it would have been nice it would still be nice to go back and And go through every word, every Hebrew word, again, searching for words that are similar in sound and meaning in Greek. But I've never had the chance to do that. I would like to one day, but I haven't. So the Greek on this list is more or less... And the Latin, because I never studied Latin. I did take it for a year in high school, 40 years ago, but I never... Well, no... 46 years ago but I've never really gotten a chance to study it since so I I don't consider myself really knowledgeable in Latin even if I do know some words I don't know if you have anything to add
1: yeah I I bet no doubt there are words um, that we got from Greek or Latin You, you know people imagine that's where we got them from but if you then studied the Hebrew That you could probably find a link on, on, you know, some or a lot of words, uh, from that Greek word back to, uh, Hebrew, right? Um, that I like, for example, is, is it crisis, which means judgment in Greek? Like, I don't know if that originates from Hebrew. I'd have to check, but that's just an example, right? Of a word that we don't realize comes from, uh, Greek, I believe.
0: Oh, yes. There's a lot of English words that come from Greek and Latin that we don't realize. And, Because Greek is far more removed from English than Latin is. We don't realize the extent to which Greek is found in English. We don't. There's an incredible amount of Greek in English. Even a word like exist comes from a Greek word, existami, which is something that's standing So something that exists is something that is more or less, right? Something that's standing. So the word exist is a Greek word in English. It's not, it's not from Latin. It comes from Greek. So the Latin words, I think most of us who have any education in literature can more often think of Latin words that are found in English. But no, there's very many Greek words in English. So, not all of these English words in my list come directly from Hebrew. Some of them certainly have. Many of them certainly have. But some of them may have come into English through Latin or Greek, However, the Latin and Greek terms are similar to Hebrew words. In Hebrew, Strong's number 95 is Agora, and it's spelled A-G-O-W-R-A-H. And all of these spellings I'm going to offer are the way that Strong had transliterated these Hebrew words in his concordance. Now, sometimes I adapt his transliterations. Strong's did a few things that are strange to me. A lot of times he doubled a consonant when there's only one occurrence of the consonant in the Hebrew. So, when I transliterate it, I omit the doubled consonants, generally. So, I don't know why he did that, but I didn't think it was right. So, this word agora means something gathered in Hebrew. And the Greek word for market is agora. So, are you going to tell me that the Greeks didn't have a word for market until they met some Jew? That's not true. Strong's number 103 is a verb, agar. It's clearly related to agora, and it means in Hebrew to gather. So, an agora is something gathered, and agar means to gather. And there's a Greek word, agairo, A-G-E-I-R-O, instead of A-G-A-R. And agairo in Greek means to bring together or to gather together. So imagine that. Now the Greek endings on their verbs changed with the conjugation of the verb, right? Whether it's first person, second person, third person, singular, plural. So if I want to say you gather, I would probably say agaira. But I gather is agairo.
1: So that ending changes. Is, is the Greek city Argos uh, related that to that, do you think? where the um, When the Danans came from Egypt, that was their major city, right? And that's where they were called the Argives. I couldn't... I wouldn't speculate on that, but it is
0: possible that Argos was a marketplace. A lot of towns and cities were established because they were in central locations that were ideal that were accessible by road or or by plane, where there were paths that made these central locations accessible from the outlying regions where things would have been grown in fields and the people that grew them had to bring them to a central location in order to try to sell them so that they could attain things that they didn't grow. Right. If I grow corn and if you grow cattle, then I'm going to take a bunch of my corn and trade it for some of your cattle. That's how marketplaces begin. So yes, it's very possible that Argos could have come from, that's, the name Argos could have come from that same concept is possible. But I wouldn't say it was definite because we really don't know where the name came from. But that's very possible. So I would agree. So, this Greek word agairo means to bring together or gather together. It's the same meaning, basically, as the Hebrew agar, which is to gather. And from that, I believe, came the Greek term agros, or farm, which gives us our English term agra, our English prefix agra, which we use for words like agriculture, which is farming. And there's also a Latin word, ager, which is a farm. And we gather things from a farm. And that's how we create an agora or a market in Greek. So, this is a related word, another related word, to the same set of words. And that's Strong's number 106. And that's, I'll pronounce it agropha. It's E-G-R-O-P-H-E, according to its Strong's transliteration. And there's another word, Gareth, G-A-R-A-P-H, which the aleph was evidently dropped. And agropha is a clenched hand or a fist. And graph is to bear off violently. And there's another word that's very very similar to those two words but it's even further on in the alphabet. It's Q-A-R-A-B It's strong number 7126 Karab, And it means to approach. And this giraffe and agropha Give us the English words grab and grope. And the Latin word capere, which is to take hold of. And that ending it on the Latin word also changes. That's the infinitive form, I believe. But it changes according to the conjugation of the verb. Whether it's singular, plural, first person, second person, third person. That's an infinitive. It, it's, would be, might be capero in, in the first person singular. I'm not positive. And the German word graben. All, I believe, came from these he, similar Hebrew words that have similar, very similar meanings. Strongs number 113. Adon means Lord or Sovereign, and that gives us both the Greek and Latin, Adonis, and the Germanic word Odin, all come from that Hebrew word meaning Lord, and have basically the same meanings. Adonis was a god, but Odin was a lord, the name of a king.
1: There could have been uh, multiple Odins, right? That really made uh, him famous. Kind of multiple merged together.
0: Yes, I believe there were multiple Odins, and that the word is simply a title for Lord, which is right from Hebrew. And and when you look at the Germanic legends, Odin came from Asa. Asa is Asia. It's Roman Asia, and the Scythians who migrated. Up into Germany in the second century AD. Odin led his people from Asia and this can be pretty much determined. The history of Odin and his journey with his people from Asa to Northwest Europe can be pretty much stitched together and pegged down to that time frame through the ancient Saxon Chronicles which were translated by Sharon Turner in his history of the Anglo-Saxons that Odin because all the later Saxon kings count account for their rule in the in the and their genealogy in the number of generations that they were from Odin, we can pretty much determine that Odin was a Germanic king who lived in the third century a d or thereabouts. And then you had the Aesir and the Vanir, and the Aesir are simply the Germanic tribes that came from Asia, where the Vanir are, I believe, the Germanic tribes that had migrated into Europe from the regions around Lake Van, which I believe is in northern Iraq, if I'm not mistaken. And they were all Scythians, descendants of the ancient Israelites. So Odin was the title for their lord, their king. The Hebrew word found at 116 in Strong's Concordance, Adeyan. Adeyan means then of time, and I believe it's the origin for the English word day. Strong's number 142, Adar, means to expand, to be great. And I believe that's the root of the Latin word, adorare, which means to adore or to worship, and gives us the English word adore. Strong's number 183, the Hebrew term ava, means to wish for. The Latin verb avere means to desire or to long for. And you could just write to wish for in that definition. My definitions of Latin come from the New College Latin and English Dictionary by John Troutman, Which is an excellent little softcover book. It really is. So. Adar is to expand or to be great in Hebrew. And it's to adore or worship in Latin and English. Ava is to wish for in Hebrew, and it's avere, which is to wish for in Latin. It's also avarice in Latin, which means greedy, and that gives us the English
1: term avarice. So that shows you how the meanings can evolve as well, right? From uh, to wish, and then later it's seen as being greedy.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I believe that the concepts are related. So the meaning evolves, but it still keeps that basic core concept of wanting something. It just became used in a negative way. Stalks number 191 is basically evil. It's E-V-I-Y-L, which in Hebrew is probably an aleph, a vav, a yod in a lambda, I'm sure. 196 is, and it means silly. And 196 is evilly, and it means silly, foolish, or impious. And then there's Strong's number 5766, which is evil, which is iniquity or perverseness. And we have actually either maintained or taken that definition right into English in our word evil. You could say that that might be a loan word, but evil has been the English word for evil since we've had English. Aside from that, Strong's number 215, and this is a really interesting word because it's going to give us a few English and Greek words, and it's transliterated awr, O-W-R, or Our A-W-R, and it means to be luminous, or light, or bright. It's the same Hebrew word, but a lot of Hebrew words have multiple strong entries. Because the rabbinical Jews had used one set of dots to denote the verb and a different set of little dot, dots and little marks to denote a noun or an adjective. So this is basically the same word, right? It's to be luminous under Strong's number 215 and light or bright As an adjective under Strong's number 216. And there's a lot of that in Strong's Concordance, where the words have different entries, but they're really the same word. They're just given different entries because of the parts of speech. They distinguish the parts of speech. That's all they distinguish. So, the Latin word aura, or air, means the atmosphere or the heights, and, or daylight, aura can mean daylight, a-u-r-a, and we have this Hebrew word, or, or r a w r, which means light or bright, the Latin word, aurum, a-u-r-u-m, is their word for gold. From these, I believe we had the English word aura as well. More interesting is, and this is a word or a form of the same word, which is not found in Biblical Hebrew, but it is found in modern Hebrew. And it evidently has its roots in ancient Hebrew. And that's the word Avir, A V I R. It's different from our only by one letter, by the addition of a yad before the R. So, avir is aleph, vav yad, resh, rather than just aleph, vav resh. And it means air. This is a Doric Greek word, because Greek was actually many different dialects. That had each had its own peculiar vocabulary. That over centuries had sort of melded into one language that was called coin Greek or common Greek, which became the base for for the Septuagint and the New Testament. Ultimately, so the Doric Greek word "a bear" is their word for air. Now, it might be that same word, which the Greeks ultimately split into air, dropping the B sound, and ahither, which is the ether, or the brighter, purer air, where air is the lower atmosphere, the air around us, and the ahither the ether or aether is the upper atmosphere and there we once again see that core concept which is to be luminous or light or bright in that word aura which the latins the romans had used for aura which is their way of saying air or atmosphere So we see a Proto-Greek word, aber, in that word, that Hebrew word, which means air, which is avir. They're the same word. The V often became a B in Greek spellings. This is an interesting word. This next word is interesting. It's Strong's number 264. Akava. And it means fraternity or brotherhood. Now, I really believe that that's also the basis for the Greek word akahia. But I don't have that in my list. That That's a belief that I don't think I could establish. But this akava, which is fraternity or brotherhood, is very similar to a Greek word that has no other logical origin. Academia, which would be academia which is the name of the school where Plato taught in the 4th century BC. And I believe that's the basis for the word academy, which can be a fraternity or a brotherhood in a school. The Hebrew word ish, which means a man or a male, is the basis for, I believe, the English suffix ish. English is an English man a man of the tribe of the Angles. Danish is a man of the tribe of the Danes. And that's how we got that suffix, in my opinion, from that Hebrew word for man.
1: Yeah, so that must be pretty ancient, right? You imagine that was something that the Saxons and Angles brought with them and and they used that name and it just kind of carried on, but the origin kind of got lost because we also now say Spanish But you don't say it with others like French or German so so it must be just something old that that was lost right and and maybe they used it back in like King Alfred's time ish or something like that right
0: well right I really do believe that originally it meant a man as it does in Hebrew that somebody Spanish is just a man who's from Spain but like you said it's not used in every case Okay, Strong's number 504, LF means an ox or a cow. And this is clearly a loan word into Greek and Latin. But it's telling to me, I I did have, and, and I'll mention them as we proceed through these lists. I do have some loan words here. I removed some, but the ones that I do have aren't loanwords into English, they're loanwords words from Hebrew into Greek and Latin. They were obviously made at a very early time because the Greeks knew about elephants long before the time of Alexander the Great and called them elephants. And the Romans must have also known about elephants long before they came into Judea. So these are ancient ancient connections between Greeks and Hebrews. Because even though the word eleph was borrowed into Greek as the word alpha, the word alpha doesn't mean an ox or a cow in Greek. They used other words to to describe them, like Boos. So And eleph is an ox or a cow, and the Greeks took that word elephas for elephant, and the Romans in Latin, it's elephantus. And that gives us the English word elephant, but I also believe it gives us the English word elk
1: comes from eleph. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting. You just wonder how that, that came about, right? It just seems a bit random. Um, maybe there's more to it, maybe there was uh, alternative meanings as well for eleph that just aren't in the Bible, like it also means a thousand, but um, you you never know, but it is just weird just random elephant why they would use eleph for that, right? Right,
0: exactly. Why would they use eleph for that, which is an ox or a cow? There must be a a deeper, older connection than this just being a Hellenistic loan word and elephants are mentioned in Greek literature, by that name, Eliphas, before the Hellenistic period began. Strong number 539 is aman, And it means to build up or support. To trust or believe. To be true or certain. Of course, to know something is true, you have to have facts building it up or supporting it. So, aman bears those meanings, but it basically means to be true or certain, or to believe that something's true or certain. So, the verb form, at 540, aman, same spelling, means to believe. And, I believe this is an adjective at 544, the word omen, it's spelled That aleph is transliterated as an O instead of as an A, and that's verity or truth. And we see that word in the New Testament, spelled with the Greek A, in the word amen. So, aman, to believe, to be true or certain. There's a Greek verb, oil mahi, which means to think, to suppose, or to believe, and the form, the first person, present form, omen means I believe in Greek. So we have this word aman, which is to believe in Hebrew, and omen, which is I believe in Greek. The Latin word omen means foreboding, that you believe something is going to happen Because of something else. And I believe that that's related to the same term. Even though there's a similar term that I'll get to in a moment. And the English word to mean, I believe, comes from aman. To mean what something means.
1: What you believe about something is, and is that why they we end prayers in um, "Amen," meaning "I believe." I'm sorry.
0: Well, well, "Amen." It, it it's it's a Hebrew expression which was used by Christ in Greek to mean that something is true. I I translate it as "truly," but this word "Aman" certainly appears in Greek as "I believe" and as. That verb, which means to think or believe or to suppose. And I believe it's also the origin for the English word mean. There's a similar word at Strong's 561 and 562. 561 is transliterated as emer, which means something spoken. And 562 is amer, O-M-E-R, which is a promise, a word, or a speech. And in Greek, we have omeris, which is a pledge or a security, which is basically a promise. And the Latin word omen, which means foreboding, promising that something is going to happen. Or amenor, which is to foretell, which is also a a promise or a statement that something is going to happen. Stock number 707, A rag means to plate or to weave. And erag, the noun form, Strong's number 708, is a weaving or a braid. And I believe that a rag, to plate or to weave, and ereg are the source of the Greek word rakos, which is a rag or a strip of cloth, and also the English word rag which is just a piece of cloth. It's something that's plated or woven. I don't know if you have any comments.
1: Yeah, and, and it's interesting just how a word like that becomes rag, but then we'll use other words like cloth, and, but, but the word still remains in the background, even if it's kind of been renegated you know, to just a rag or a dirty rag, right?
0: Well, absolutely. A rag is just a piece of cloth, but... I think the term probably had a broader meaning in medieval English or in older English. And we refer to our clothes as rags. To this day, it's it's an element of our slang. Strong's number 772. And a related Strong's number 776. 772 is ara. And it means earth or land. And so does 776, which is erets, earth or land. We have a whole collection of English, Greek, and Latin words which are related to these. The Greek verb aurora, A-R-O-U-R-A, is arable land, ara, aurora. The Greek word arao, a verb, is to plow. The Latin verb arare, is to plow. The Latin word aratio is cultivation or arable land. The Latin noun arator is a farmer. And we have the English words arable and area. Area being a plot of earth or land. And ultimately, I believe the English word earth also comes from ara. And arets, the English word earth itself which means earth or land so all these terms clearly have their root in Hebrew all these Greek and Latin terms especially which have to do with the land and working the land Strong's number 784 is Esh which is fire now Later on in the alphabet, there's three words that begin with an ayin rather than an aleph. And the ayin, I believe, represents some sort of rough-breathing A sound as well. Strong's number 620, 6225, is ashan, A-S-H-A-N, and it means to smoke. Strong's number 6226, ashen. A-S-H-E-N is smoky. And the noun 6227 is transliterated again as ashan, A-S-H-A-N. And it means smoke. So from these words for fire and smoke, we have the English words ash, ashen, and ashy. There's a clear correlation there in sound and in meaning. Strong's number 816, Asham, is to be guilty. Strong's number 817, spelled the same way, Asham, as a noun, is guilt. Strong's number 8034 is Shem, which is a name or appellation, and it's not as directly related to these English words as these others, but that's fine. I felt need to include it in the list, Strong's number eight o four seven, Shama is ruined. Eighty seventy four, Shamem is to stun, and eighty seventy six, Shamem, same spelling, is ruined or desolate. And from this collection of Hebrew words, we have the English word shame which is to be disgraced, because one is guilty, and we have asham, which is guilt, or to be guilty, the English word shame and ashamed come from them. And the English word sham, I believe, comes from them. And the English word shambles, which is, I believe, directly derived from shama,
1: and shamem, which
0: is to be
1: ruined or desolate that's interesting because in the um, Odin legend the Yidrasil is it the tree of life is an ash tree as well which which is interesting when you connect it to uh, to shame or be ashamed or guilty right that um, Adam and Eve were guilty and and that's why we uh, have to go through this life right I don't know if it's just a random connection but it was an ash tree right yes
0: I believe so it was supposedly an ash tree I don't know how they would have spelt that in Gothic or Germanic, however. I don't know. I would have to look into that. This word sham, and this is why I mention shem, which is a name or an appellation. A sham is something which is not what it's supposed to be. It's not what it's purported to be or named. So I believe there's a con- connection there. Very often words come to mean the opposite of what they originally did because of their use in common vernacular. Moving on to Strong's number 859, ATAH, A-T-T-A-H. This word actually has several different transliterations. So I will run through them all. ATAH, a t t i. Y, Atem, A-T-T-E-M, Aten, A-T-T-E-N, Atena, A-T-T-E-N-A-H, and Atena, A-T-T-E-N-N-A-H. They are all a collection of second person pronouns. And I believe they are the source for the Latin verb, attentio which is attention. If I am trying to get your attention, I use a second person pronoun like, hey you, in English. You is the second person pronoun. Hey you. But in Hebrew, it would be ata or atena or aten. And that gives us the Latin verb attentio, which is attention. Attention is a way of saying To a group, listen to me. I have something to say. I want to address you. Second person pronoun. But we have a verb, attentio, in Latin. Or attendere, which is to notice or to pay attention. And from that, I believe we have the English word attention through Latin. But the Latin clearly comes from the Hebrew. Okay, Strong's number 862 is attuk, A-T-T-I-W-Q, or U-W-Q. Strong's transliterates it both ways. It's a ledge or offset in a building. I believe that is the source for our English word attic. Strong's number 935 is bow. And it means to come or go. I believe that's the origin of the English word bow. Which is a curve. It comes and goes. I can't prove that. This next one is much clearer. Strong's number 952. Bore. B-O-W-R. Actually means to bore. Or as a noun it means a pit hole. And that is certainly... The source of the English word bore to drill a hole through, and possibly the word born, the hole whence ye are dug. Strong's number nine fifty four, bush b u w s h, is to make pale, to make pale, and by implication to be ashamed. I believe that's the source of the English word
1: blush. Strong's so it kind of got a reverted meaning, right? I'm sorry. It kind of ended up the opposite, turning red, right? <laughs> Rather than white.
0: Yes, I believe a lot of words end up the opposite of what they are. But if you're ashamed, you'll blush.
1: Oh, yeah, like embarrassed, right? People go bright red, yeah.
0: Yes. So, Strong's number 956, the word booth, B-U-W-T-H, means to lodge overnight and that must be the origin of the English term booth.
1: Strong's oh, number... also is Sukkoth a compound word of booth?
0: I don't know if Sukkoth is a compound of booth, because it would have a K in it, rather than a yeah. B or a beta. But it's possible that those two words are related in more ancient Hebrew. But the tent... Is that, that word Sukkoth is often translated as booth in English because a booth in English is also a tent or a temporary lodging. Strong's number 996, ban, B-E-Y-N, is a distinction. And I believe that's the source for the English word ban, which makes you, puts you under a distinction and separates you. Strong's number 104, baeth, is a house. And if you add the article, it's ha the house. In Latin, we have the verb habitare, which is to live in or inhabit. The word habitatio, which is a habitat, a residence. We have the English word bath which is a house for bathing and habit is the custom of a house. We also have the words habitat and inhabit. They are all related and they are all from this Hebrew term habith or Bath which is a house.
1: And, like, this is the most basic, well, one of the most basic things in our life, right? Having a house. And if even that comes from Hebrew, you should really wonder, how the hell did that come from Hebrew, right?
0: Absolutely. But that's how it came from Hebrew. That word, habed, the house, habitat. It It's... I don't see how the Romans could come up with such a term randomly for house or for a place to live in or inhabit a residence, habetahio, when the Hebrew word is habayeth, the house, those terms have to be connected. They are far too similar in form and in meaning. Strong's number 1082, balag, B-A-L-A-G, is to break off or loose. And the Latin word plaga is a wound or a gash or a welt. And I also believe that the English words plague, pillage, and plagiary may have come from the same word. To break something off is to wound it. If something breaks loose in English, it's a plague. Or you pillage things by breaking them off or loose. And that's also a form of Plagiary Is a form of pillage. So I believe those words are related. Strong's number eleven sixty three, bat, b a apostrophe a two a t bahat, to trample down, bata b a t t a h, Strong's number thirteen twenty seven, is desolation. Bata. And in Latin, we have batuare, which is to beat or to pound. The old French word batte, B-A-T-T-E, and the English words bat, batter, battle, beat, pat, and patter are all related to these Hebrew words. Baat, to trample down, and bata, which is desolation and that's exactly what
1: happens when you batter something beat it
0: or have a battle
1: that's what um, Adam was really meant to do to to the other races right
0: well yes he was put here on earth to have dominion that word dominion comes from a word which means to trample down stars number 1197 Bayar is to kindle and I believe that's the source of the Greek word "per," which is fire. And the English term burn. And possibly even brand, which is to burn something into something else. Burn and bear, which is to kindle, are certainly related terms. And the Greek word "per," where the B becomes a P, that happens often in transitions from one language to another. Strong's number 1254, bara, means to create. I believe that's the source of the English word bear, in the sense of bearing children. Strong's number 1285, bereath, a compact or covenant. And I believe that's the source of the English word burden, which in Old English was burthen, And also, The English word brother. Strong's number 925. Bahir. B-A-H-I-Y-R. Means shining. And Strong's number 1305. Barar. Means to make clear. To clarify. Or to brighten. I believe they are related to the English words bear. Barren which is to make something clear. And beer, B-I-E-R, which is a pyre. But to bear something is to make it clear, to clarify it, to let it be seen. Songs number 1313. Bassam is to be fragrant. And I believe that's where we get the Greek term balsamo- balsamalachion, which is a balsam olive, and the Latin term balsamum, which is balsam, came from this Hebrew term basam, which means to be fragrant. That may be a loan word, but like elephantus and elephus, it's an ancient, a very ancient loan word, which shows cultural connections to me. Songs number 1333. Bafak. To cut in pieces. And that, I believe, is the source of the English word batch. Which is basically to cut something up in pieces. To make batches out of it. Even if it's a liquid. Especially. Strongs number 1350 and 1351. Gaal. They're both transliterated the same. G-A apostrophe A-L. Gaal. To redeem or even to soil or desecrate something. I believe that the idea of being redemption, that's the source of the English word gaol or jail. Strong's number 1443. Gadar, to wall in or around. Or as a noun, 1444, gedar is a circumvallation and 1447 gadder, a circumvallation or by implication an enclosure and the feminine form 1448 gedera is an enclosure and I believe they are the source of the English words grid gird guard garden and possibly even corral I don't know if you have any comments
1: um no, no, not really anything to say. Um, but, yeah, it's just interesting, though, that words just gradually evolved. I imagine Garden gradually came from this, right? That The grid that you would mark out a patch, right?
0: Absolutely. To gird something, which is to put something around it to support it. Yes, I believe these words are definitely related. They are too basic, so basically the same... In both sound and meaning, over and over again, bafok, thatch, gale, gale, to redeem, to be in jail where you need redemption. That's why you're in jail. So yeah, it, it's these words are too common. The next word, fourteen eighty-six, goral, goral, G-O-R-A-L. Or 1632, g-a-r-o-l, garol, and that's actually transliterated both ways, garol and gorol. The first term, gorol, 1486, is from an unused root meaning to be rough as a stone. And the second term, 1632, garol or gorol, is properly a pebble And then a lot or figuratively a portion or it can mean harsh according to Strong's. And from there we have the English terms gruel, growl, and coral from its roughness, from its rough texture. And all three of those words, gruel, growl, and coral have the same basic sound and they all refer to something or describe something that is rough. A growl is a rough sound. Strong's number 1564, golem, g-o-l-e-m, is an unformed mass. And in Latin, we have the term glomeramen, which is a ball, and the verb glomerare, which is to form into a ball. And I believe we have the English terms glomerate and conglomerate, which we perceive as coming from Latin, which is fine. But the origin is this Hebrew term golem, which is an unformed mass, which is what we would call a ball of something. Another loan word, 1581, gamal is a camel, we have it in Greek, camelos, and the English word
1: camel. And uh, th- this is actually the um, one of the letters, right? The third letter, which shows you that the um, the origin of of uh, Hebrew must have been either in Egypt or the Middle East, where they developed this alphabet. And obviously, we would have had no other uh, name for camel. We must have just taken it with us, right? So, so, obviously, we must be the Israelites. It's only logical from this word, especially.
0: Well, yes, that the Greeks took that word with them, camelus, yes, and the g in that particular word became a k, which also happens quite often in transitions from one language to another. But the Greeks maintained the g sound when they gave their, the, their alphabet letters their names, they followed closely to the Hebrew with Aleph becoming Alpha and Beth becoming Beta and Gamal, which is the G in Hebrew, the third letter of the alphabet, is Gamma in Greek, which is the third letter of the alphabet and represents a G. But somehow, as a word, Gamal became Kamalos in greek and they drop the g in favor of a k but it's still the obviously the same word it's a camel songs number 1621 gogaroth g a r g e r o w t h that w being a vowel being a vab i believe is a consonantal vowel so gogaroth is the throat or the neck and from there, I believe, came the old French words gargate, which is throat, gargoyle, gargoyle, I guess I would pronounce the French word, g-a-r-g-o-u-i-l-e. But the English words, which I can pronounce, gargay, gargle, and gargoyle. A gargoyle is actually, they, they're these little creatures that they used to drain water away from the roofs of buildings. They would go down the gutters into the gargoyle, the water would, travel down the roof into the gutters into the gargoyle, and the gargoyle acted as a spout where the water came out of its throat. So I believe that's where the term came from, gargoyle, from the same idea for throat that we see in the English and French words gargoyle and, and gargoyle and gargate and gargle and they all came from this Hebrew word for throat which is gargaroth the throat I of thought the, you meant
1: the um statues on the churches were a red gargoyle
0: yeah probably because a Jew designed them I don't know That leads us to a similar related term, Strong's number 1627, garon, G-A-R-O-N, which also means the throat or the neck, and I believe gives us the English word groan. 1659. Gashash. G-A-S-H-A-S-H. Gashash. To feel about is, I believe, the source for the English word guess, which is basically to feel about, to guess. The middle Dutch form is gissen. Strong's number 1724, daham, D-A-H-A-M, to be dumb, dumbfounded. Strong's number 1820, dama, to be dumb or silent. This is clearly the source of the English word dumb, which is to be silent, to be unable to speak, to be dumb. Strong's number 1826. Damam, D-A-M-A-M, to be dumb, to stop, also to perish. And in this I see the origin of the Latin word dormire, which is to sleep, or dormitare, to be sleepy. And we get the English word dormitory from there, but also the English word dormant. And they're all from this Hebrew word damam, which is to be dumb, or also to stop or perish. Something dormant is something that looks dead, or something that's asleep. 1752, door, d-u-w-r, to gyrate or to remain. 1755, door, d-o-w-r, or just d-o-r, a revolution of time, an age. The Latin word, the verb, durare, means to last. Durabilis means durable or lasting. The English words door, durable, duration, and endor, which all last for a revolution of time or an age. The Hebrew word door.
1: Oh, and this is where Noah was, was it pure in his door, which shows you pure in his duration, right? There's yes. Yes, Just when was, people uh, question, oh, no, no, it doesn't mean that. Well, here you can see it, right?
0: Oh, yes, it does mean that. It definitely means that. He he was pure in his having endured because he's seventh from Adam, and he's still a pure Adamite, a truly Adamic man, who's also perfect in his Toledah, or descent, so both words are used and it's a, it, it's a Hebrew parallelism that shows us that both words have basically the same meaning in that particular context. Strongs numbers 1758, 1759, and 1760. These are <clears throat> all verbs. They're all defined as verbs. Douche. D-U-W-S-H, D-O-W-S-H, D-I-Y-S-H, and the Y and the W are actually the, the, the W is a VAV and the Y is representing an iota in the spelling. But sometimes the Hebrew scribes did make the error of, and not only the scribes, but also readers of Hebrew made the error between the vav and the yad because the two letters are formed exactly the same. If you make the stroke just a little too long on that yod, it looks like a vav. So, douche, doush, deesh, it's the same word. 1760 is the feminine form of it, dasha, and they mean to trample or thresh, to trample or push down, and I believe that's the source for the English word dash. Danish daska. The English term dash. Strong's number 1768 is a preposition. D. D-I-Y. It's spelled. It's probably just a D with a yod in Hebrew. And it means of. And that is the origin, clearly, of the Spanish preposition de. Which means of, or the French and Italian D, which is D apostrophe, and means of. Same exact meaning, and basically the same spelling. 1777, 78, and 79 are also all very similar. Dean, D-I-Y-N, and we see the same problem here that we saw in the last group of words that meant to trample or push down. D I y N and D U W N and the vowel of course is added in. The D Y N would be a D, a Yad and a NUN or an N, and the D U W N would be the D and the VAV and the NUN. And Those words mean to rule or, by implication, to judge. And then the 1778, dean, D-I-Y-N, is to judge. And 1779 is the noun form, and it's in both forms, dean and dune. And it's judgment or justice, and that, I believe, is the source of the English words, dean, which is somebody who, who sits over a school, right? He's a judge over the school or ruling over the school, as the word can mean, to rule and by implication to judge. That's the source of the English word dean and the English word deem, D-E-E-M, which is to judge something, to deem it acceptable or not or or whatever you're
1: deciding, and um, also the the word da- Dan, right? The the tribe of Dan that means to judge, and some people pointed out that um, Dan or Don, I believe, also means ruler or something like that. A, a Don, I think a Don can Don Ken had that term
0: in certain contexts, especially perhaps in Italy. Okay, Strong's number eighteen eighteen. Damn, blood, I really believe is the source. The Latin word damnare, which is to condemn, and the English word damn. When you're damned, you're liable for blood. Strong's number, and this is related, Strong's number 1822, Duma, D-U-M-M-A-H, is desolation, and I believe the source of the English word
1: doom. To be doomed. To be desolate. And all Jews are doomed because of their blood, right? Yes, absolutely.
0: Strong's number eighteen fifty six, Dakar, D A Q A R, is to stab, and I believe that's the source of the Greek word doctilus, which is a finger, and the Latins had the same word doctilus, which is a finger, and also the word daca. Or dacus, which is a knife, and the English word dagger, all come from this word dākar, to stab. strong number 1887, he, means low, getting your attention. And I believe that's the source of the English expression, hey, or hi. Hey, same word. It's the same word. Now, maybe some people might think that's a coincidence. That's fine. But it's still the same word
1: with the same meaning. So if we went back in time, at least we'd be able to say hi to each other. Yeah, right. Hey, yeah, right.
0: (laughs) Strong's number 1931. Who, H-U-W, or he, H-I-Y, are third-person pronouns. And I believe they're the source of the English pronouns who and he. Maybe that's too easy. But there's no doubt a clear connection there. Strongs number 1934. Hava. To exist or to be is the source of the English word have. If you have something, it's because it exists. Because it is. If you don't have it, then it, then it doesn't exist, or it is not. Somebody else might have a copy of it, but you won't have it. Strongs number 1946. Hook. H-U-W-K. Is to go, or in a causative sense, to bring. And I believe that's the source of the English word hook, which is something that we use to bring something to us. Strongs number 1949. Hum, H-U-W-M, to make an uproar, is the source of the Greek words humness, and the English word hum. I have to fix, I have a typo in that. Humness is a hymn, and the English word hum, something that's humming, is something that's basically making an uproar, it's making a an annoying prolonged noise. Strong's number 1993, hama, to make a loud sound is another candidate for the origin of the English word hum but also the English word hammer which is something that makes a loud sound when you use it. Strong's number 1995, haman or hamoon Is a noise, a tumult, or a crowd. And the Greek word harmonia is a concord of sounds, a noise, a tumult, or the sounds of a crowd. And we get the English words harmony and harmonic from that. But I believe the original source is this Hebrew term haman. The Greeks only added an R and an ending. Strong's number 1964. Heikal is a large public building. And I believe the source of the English word hall. It's only abbreviated. More interesting. Strong's number 1984 is Halal. And it means to shine. Strong's number 1966 is Halel. Which is the morning star. Which shines in the sky. The Greek term Helios is sun, had to come from that Hebrew word, and the English words halo and halogen and similar terms also came from those Hebrew words. Halo being something which shines around something else, halogen simply being a modern use of that term. I think that's enough for today, and we will continue this next week.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating, right? Just seeing um so many of our words that you take for granted that you see um that our ancestors used were well, very similar words, maybe sounding a little bit different. But, you know, that's what to be expected, right? We didn't just uh, suddenly uh, gain a completely different culture and language. It just gradually evolved, right? That, and that's what you'd expect.
0: Absolutely. And other words in English have no root at all in Hebrew because they probably came from other sources, from some of the other surrounding nations, or they evolved over time on their own, and new words appear in English all the time. It, it's It Look at some of these words that you use, like loo and lorry, which a lorry is a truck, right? You don't hear that term in America. Or, or, oh, a lorry, yeah, yeah. To go to the loo is to go to the bathroom. You don't hear that in America. If you stood in New York and said, I have to go to the loo, do you know where the loo is? People would look at you like you're an alien. They wouldn't know what you were talking about.
1: (laughs) I've heard people have said that in Australia and they've looked at them and went, oh, you mean the Kazi? So they have a completely different uh, name. (laughs) Yeah, right. And we don't use that term here either.
0: And I'm sure that there
1: are probably...
0: Dozens and dozens of terms that you use in Britain that we don't use here. Some of them may not be as common, but those two terms are very common, Lou and Laurie. And we don't use them here.
1: That The one I've always found funny is how we have um, like underwear and trousers or pants and trousers, but you have pants as your trousers. So, sorry, I've got confused. You have underwear and your pants, right? Whilst we would just say pants and trousers. So your pants are your underwear. Yeah, exactly. Okay.
0: Here the word pants is a synonym for trousers. So if you were referring to underpants or underwear, you would say underpants. You wouldn't just say pants. all uh, right right, okay. I could go out and about town in my pants. I would never go in my underwear, right? <laughs> So, if you said somebody was walking around town in his pants, that might be offensive in Britain, but it would be normal here, right? Yeah, exactly. So, what's the problem? (laughs) Well, they were fruited a loom. Oh, you mean his underwear. Okay. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, there's probably um, many occurrences of that, too, where the same word is used to describe something slightly different. I wouldn't doubt it.
1: Yeah, like um, chips, uh, we would call them crisps. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the I'm getting confused. Well, yeah, we have crisps and chips, but you have chips are crisps, right? And you say fries, I think, from the French, French fries.
0: Yes. I, think, I, I don't think the word French fry came from the French. I, I think perhaps the French popularized what we call a French fry. But it's basically just a fried potato, and we call them yeah. fries for short. It's a fried piece of potato to qualify that. And they're called French fries, even though they come in different shapes. I think the French may popularize that one crinkly shape that's so popular here. But yeah, there's going to be all kinds of differences like that. But, I I mean, lorry is a much bigger difference because it's a word that's not even used here. And it means a truck. But it means a certain type of truck. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, lorries would be um, like a massive truck, you know, a long one that supermarkets would use to uh, move all their stuff in.
0: Okay. So that's a relatively new invention, the massive truck. I mean, it's the last 70, 80 years that it's been developed. So that's just a totally different term that evolved in England for something that appeared probably in both countries around the same time. But we just call it a truck or a tractor trailer. Okay, I guess that's enough for today, and we'll see you next week. We'll be back here with the same list next week.
1: Yep, thanks for me as always, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. And good night.